Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung. On today's episode, Dr. Bernard Seif interviews Dr. Tim Barksdale about his journey in the field. Prior episodes were driven more heavily by topics, such as the State Board of Psychology, addiction, and research on school shooters. Today's interview, however, focuses more on the life and development of one of our PPA leaders and all the wonderfully diverse paths our career journeys take us upon. Because of this, uh, Dr. Seif, I thought it would be nice to ask you also to share a bit about your own journey. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. It's a pleasure to be here. I always wanted to help people stop hurting inside. When I was a little kid, I think it was one of my first memories, first conscious thoughts. I didn't know there were such people as psychologists, but that's what I turned into. And so a little bit diverse in the sense that I'm a Catholic monk as my kind of ground vocation, and then minister, serve as a clinical psychologist, and I'm also a doctor of natural medicine. So I have a little bit of uh, diversity going on in my own background. My uh, doctoral research and continuing work and even some conferences I've given in the States and in other countries have been about freeing the world of prejudice, prejudice in all its forms toward other religions, other races, other creeds, sexuality, whatever, just being kind and not judging one another. So Tim and I, I think, became sort of very comfortable and in sync with one another. I use hypnosis all the time, as does he. He's trained in that. I have been to Asia a number of times and practiced Chinese medicine as the specialty in my natural medicine background. So I guess I have a lot of variety in my past. I think it's just because I'm old and you collect these things over the years. And at this point in my life, I find that Uh, someone asked me to write an article and they asked me to write as a seasoned psychologist. And I said, I think that just means old. And she laughed. That that was the word that I was going to use, Bernie. Uh, (laughs) Not old, seasoned. There we go. (laughs) Yes. But in that process, you know, I really believe that the more experience we have, the better it gets. And now at almost 74 years of age, I I just love uh, more than ever the work that I do, the variety of it, and people such as yourself and so many others whom I'm privileged to work with. Well, Bernie, thanks for sharing a bit about yourself. I think it'd be wonderfully interesting to take a survey of fellow psychologists to find out the, the first moments, uh, for the first inklings of that desire to help. I know for me, it was... There was a moment when I was sitting in class in sixth grade, and I and I had this impression that I wanted to be the kind of person that people could come to and, and talk to me about. And at the time, like you, I had no idea what that meant. But uh, it's interesting to see how, how we develop over time. Oh, yeah, I'm very happy to hear that. And uh, I think you'll see some of that uh, in the interview that's coming up. So, Bernie, how did this interview uh, come about? I have admired Tim. I knew him before he was, before he had his doctorate. He was a doctoral student. I met him through Pennsylvania Psychological Association and just would see him at conferences briefly and chat. And there was always kind of a mutual respect there. 
And I admire the work that he does. He works with people with intellectual challenges, uh, emotional challenges. He teaches at a university. He's an administrator. And so there were a lot of bridges that just made things kind of come in sync. And I and since I'm on the, the diversity committee, as well as on the podcast committee, once in a while, there's a little synapse or linkage in my brain. And it happened at one point. And I said, maybe I can bring those two together by interviewing Tim. And uh, he was very gracious and uh, open to that possibility. Yeah, I, I enjoyed listening to it. It was very conversational. Uh, what were some of the things that interested you most during your conversation with Dr. Barksdale? I think the evolution of his career in coming from the South and having a, a Southern drawl and coming to Philly, where I grew up, and uh, having to kind of deal with that with some of his peers when he was a young young boy, and having a uh, brother who's physically challenged with cerebral palsy, and having to kind of protect this brother. I think some of those things, I really believe that out of our own challenges, sometimes and out of our own wounding comes so it comes a way to help heal others. And I, I saw that in him so powerfully. And I also have a brother with cerebral palsy. And he, his mother worked at and he volunteered at the state hospital where my brother spent most of his life. So every once in a while, one of these things would come up during the session and I would have to just try to control myself and keep focusing on Tim and, and trying not to explain my situation as well. You know, one of the things that I've enjoyed about this podcast project is beyond the information itself that we're disseminating to the listener, it's the the humanity of it, the the joy of getting to know wonderful people in our field. And that came through in this interview. And uh, I appreciate you, you sharing with the listeners uh, a bit of it about your background as well. And uh, I, thank you for interviewing Dr. Barksdale for us. Now, for our listeners, our interviews are often done in the field, so you might hear some background noise during parts of the interview. So we ask that you bear with us during those segments. And now for the interview. Well, it is a real pleasure to sit across from Dr. Tim Barksdale. And I believe we met some years ago when you were a doctoral student and we were at a PPA conference, Pennsylvania okay. Psychological Association conference. and. Since then, uh, I think you've graduated yes. and, uh, with a Doctor of Psychology degree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Doctor of Clinical Psychology. Oh, very fine. Mm -hmm. Good mm -hmm. stuff. And I saw that you have quite a bit of educational background, and I know you're a humble man. <laughs> so if you could remember what St. Bernard says about humility. Humility is truth. Okay. And we know where it comes from, but... And, and, and who you are as a person and what you do is what we really want to hear. Uh, but maybe you can tell us a little bit. Of, like, it looks like you have two master's degrees. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. And what do they do? So I, I'll, let me start from the beginning. Yeah. So um, I started out as a special education teacher. Yes. And how I got into that is my brother was born with cerebral palsy. And, um, and, and I didn't think that had anything to do with my career because my mom was uh, very good in raising, I have uh, uh, two sisters and a brother. 
and we were all raised the same. Um, no one, um, he didn't, definitely didn't get out of chores and, 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 you know, he played with us and, you know, every once in a while I had to protect him from bullying um, because of uh, his disability. But otherwise, yeah, we were just raised as regular children. So I didn't think that was gonna affect my career. The second part is that when I was about 14, my mom started working at a camp for um, adults with intellectual disability. And what we would do is people would come from the institution of Pennhurst and we would provide six weeks of recreation for them. So I was a, pro, I was a camp specialist and um, what I, my job was to go to the mountains and uh, bring the horse down so they could ride the horse. Oh. And I would lead them in art activities and uh, help them prep for theater. We did drama and things like that. So my involvement with this adult population, you know, when it was time for me to start um, going to college, I looked back and I said, well, you know, I'm gonna need a job pretty quickly and I have all this experience to go on my resume, so I'm gonna go into special education. Yeah, so unfortunately or fortunately, the day after I graduated, um, I was um, offered a supervisory position because while I was a student, I was also a direct care worker at residential homes for adults with intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my trajectory. And I, I did the residential homes for about nine years and then went back to school at LaSalle University and got my master's in human service psychology. Beautiful. And from there, I became a master's level therapy for just uh, for community mental health centers. Mm -hmm. So I left the field of intellectual disability and, and just worked with the general population. Was a therapist for 10 years. <laughs> wow. And then went back to school uh, for my doctorate. Wow. Yeah. And um, I went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Mm -hmm. And what they do is pretty smart. You know, once you get four years into the program so you don't just get discouraged, they give you a master's degree and say, that doctorate's right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got my second master's. Understood. Yes. And then I got uh, yeah, a doctorate in clinical psychology. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I want, certainly want to keep the focus on you, Tim, but we have so many overlapping things. I have a brother, well, he, my late brother had cerebral palsy. Oh. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think those things really do have a bearing on drawing us into the helping professions. Is that uh, kind of how you found it? Uh, apparently. I mean, I had been working probably for a good 10 years, and I went to a workshop. And they were talking about how you select your careers. And at that point, I was just thinking it was random. And I looked back and I was like, oh, wow, you know, that probably had an impact. <laughs> I agree. It took me about 50 years to discover that, too. But I think that's what happened. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I was looking up uh, your bio earlier and taking some notes yesterday in preparation. And there was so much there. I just stopped taking notes and I just... Uh, <laughs> pulled the bio up here on online. Another area that I see that you have uh, interest in is hypnotherapy. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so um, while I was a behavioral health therapist, I did, I specialized mostly in CBT. Mm -hmm. And I started reading about hypnosis and I saw how it tied in. Mm -hmm. You know, that when you uh, put in the suggestions, that you also kind of worked with uh, some of the principles of CBT to keep them stuck there. And then after you, know, after you do the hypnosis, 
then you follow up with therapy to really reinforce whatever their goals may have been. So yeah, I went to a program, um, it was a year long. Well, you know, normally I think it was six weeks, but I actually worked with the, the trainer for a year to make sure that I knew it, mm-hmm. check back in with the person. Um, as a result, and it's funny because when I was taken under, you know, hypnotized, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of had one eye open and I, and I was resistant, you know. So when I did it on other people, I thought, well, you know what, it's worth a try. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, you know, each time I was pleasantly surprised, people come back and I could see that they had lost weight, that they had stopped smoking, you know, and that this was lasting for, you know, over a year. So, um, yeah, it seems to, you know, I, I haven't done it in quite a while because I've been more involved in administration, but when I go back to private practice, that's something that I definitely will pick back up. Fantastic. Yeah. I, too, have a background in hypnosis. I use it practically every day with oh, patients. Okay. Yeah, so another bridge there. And I'm going to try to still keep that focus on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good to hear the commonalities. Yeah, yeah there's mm-hmm. lots of them, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I see that you you welcome anybody into the work that you do, like any type of client. You know, you have mm-hmm. everything checked off. Right. <laughs> All are welcome here, huh? Yeah. When okay. I when I did um, community mental health, um, I was just you know it was kind of whoever was assigned to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got the experience of working with people with depression, anxiety disorder, schizophrenia, wow. um, the full gamut, OCD, and I would have to just when I was given the assignment, you know, hit the books, and then um, I was fortunate to have a good pool of friends that I could draw from to get supervised during that time, just to make sure that, you know, I was competent. I think you're a wonderful example of the wideness of the field of mental health, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of people kind of think of us as doing talk therapy all the time. Right. And we do a lot of that, but mm-hmm. we're in every area. We're in prisons, we're in uh, uh, hospital chaplains, work, uh, education, research. Yeah. And and yours uh, is administrative at this point? Now it is, but you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I did my internship at Holcomb. And so they had, over the course of the year, I think we had about four cycles. So we had to do, straight through, we had to do community mental health. But we also, so in the mornings, uh, we would have to do a specialty. And then in the afternoon, drive to our our location to do the community mental health. Mm. So for, you know, the first quarter of the year, I did um, drug and alcohol. Mm and that involved everything from doing the drug screens to doing group therapy to doing individual therapy to doing intakes and you know four weeks late about six weeks later you know just when you got a good handle of it it was time to rotate out mm-hmm. so you you had to train the next person to take over for your role and then you went into your next area so i, I did the drug and alcohol then i went and did the prison system uh, in chester county so I learned how to, to work with that population, doing uh, mental health evaluations, doing individual therapy, and doing group therapy in the prison settings, and then rotated out. And we had something called special populations where I got some more experience working with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, so I think, oh, and then my last cycle was crisis. 
so we had to man the phones so that if there was someone who was um, suicidal or exhibiting serious mental health, we would either support them over the phone or we would get a team and go out. And sometimes, you know, we had things as tense as someone being suicidal who were barricaded in a home with maybe a family member. So we would have to go with the police and really help to contain the individual um, and, you know, and manage it that way. So that experience, it was a great experience, you know. And, and when I came out, I felt fully uh, prepared, you know, to do so much. I mean, because when I was at the crisis center, we had to do neuropsychological testing, um, making sure, you know, you know, what is the person's diagnosis, what is the, the IQ testing, you know, just to find out. And we had great supervision, so we were able mm-hmm. to do all of that and get a nice taste of what the possibilities were. So a lot of good mentoring along the way, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and by now, having those varied experiences, um, when it was co- time to, <laughs> as soon as I graduated, again, every time I graduated, the, the world just kind of opened up to me. Wonderful. And so when I graduated with my doctorate, um, I was going to take a, um, what do you call it, postdoc mm-hmm. at Devereux, mm-hmm. and Horizon House called me and said, Tim, we hear you graduated, and they knew I was in the field before. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I've already accepted a postdoc. And they said, well, whatever they're paying, we'll pay you double. We need you to come and be our clinical team director. Wow. So I came there, and after six months, they made me the supervisor of my supervisor. So I became the clinical director for Horizon House. Wow, what a wonderful experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the doors just keep opening. I think when you're dedicated like that and you're focused, there's lots of hurdles, but uh, you just stay with it and you yeah. continue to grow personally, professionally. Uh-huh. Wow, that's, that's super. Yeah. And when I was at Horizon House, like I said, I became my supervisor. supervisor. Well, I later went to Miraki and became um, executive clinical director there. And I had an opening for a, um, a clinical director to report to me. So I went back and I hired a guy who I uh, was a supervisor of, so now he works for me at Horizon House. I mean, not at Horizon House, at Marikey. Yes, Mary Key. that's spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, where's Marikey? So Marikey used to be called NHS, Northwestern Human Services. Oh, yeah. And they do both behavioral health. They have um, about 3,000 people that they provide um, behavioral health across Pennsylvania and in other states. Mm. And then the other half is intellectual and developmental disabilities and autism. So I run the, the um, intellectual and developmental disability section. So responsible for 3,000 patients. Wow. I have eight clinical directors that report to me across five states. So that is um, 54 counties in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, um, Virginia, and California. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so in two weeks, we're opening up uh, two homes in Sacramento. I've already trained the staff in San Diego, so now um, we're expanding in California. So I, I get around a bit. You certainly do. <laughs> it, you had all such good mentoring along the way, and now it sounds like you are a mentor to many others. Yeah, I, I do get that, uh, that opportunity, um, both unofficial, you know, with just various mm-hmm. colleagues, and officially, um, the Pennsylvania Psychological Association has an emerging leader program, mm. and I've had the opportunity to serve as mentor to uh, Brittany Caro. 
um, who put together a project on um, social decision making. Which helps Pennsylvania Psychological Association decide, you know, what what political issues to get involved with, and any type of issues that affect psychologists. Fantastic. So. I think you mentioned something about you're involved in some legislation right now. Do I understand that? Where there's something we're promoting or yeah, um, there, there's a few things, and that, that's just me being involved in Advocacy Day. Oh, okay. yeah. So um, whatever the um, the agenda for the group is. I've done that with APA and PPA. Well, so you go to Harrisburg to help uh, advocate for uh, healthy changes and yeah, policy. healthy changes yeah. in terms mm -hmm. of uh, prescriptive rights for psychologists, um, for um, admitting privileges. Mm -hmm. You know, those are some of the topics. Some topics in terms of adults with intellectual disabilities. Yes. So yeah. yeah. So wow. across the board. Yeah. And at, at the APA level as well. Well. Yeah. So we go to Washington, D.C., and again, the, the agenda items tend to be um, similar. So um, for a couple of years, I served as diversity liaison and uh, was able to um, uh, go with the group and, and help advocate for whatever the issues were. I think you're behind uh, a, a potential change in the bylaws oh, with yes. the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so <laughs> when I first became a member of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association, I noticed that year after year, uh, when it came to African American men, I was at, you know, every once in a while I might see someone else or a student, but the group wasn't changing. And, you know, by career, by study, I'd never been, you know, particularly a, I don't know, radical advocate for multiculturalism, but there was a need there. So first of all, my, my introduction into the Pennsylvania Psychological Association was as a student. Mm -hmm. And so I joined the Committee on Multiculturalism, and about three years in, the chair of that committee, um, she resigned, mm -hmm. and so she put me in that position, and at that point, there were no students that were in leadership roles on a committee level. And I remember one of the staff members saying, no, you're a student, that can't happen. But the group voted me in. And so from that point of view, um, when I got into leadership, so I, I, I chaired as the Committee on Multiculturalism and then went into being a board member, public interest board chair. And um, when I got on the board, I said, you know, we really need to not just have a committee, but we really need to look at diversity and inclusion across the organization, across the association. Um, and when I was on the committee, I went to the president and said we needed to do that. And when he took me to APA, he said, this is their structure. We can't do it. We follow our structure like they do. So we can't have a representative who is just solely for um, diversity and inclusion areas. So last year I decided to do some research. And so, and my mother helped me. Amen. <laughs> and so we looked at every single um, organization in the United States mm -hmm. and I pulled numbers. And I was able to do a presentation to the board and show them that there were already 20 states that were doing it and that Pennsylvania being one of the largest, you know, it's Pennsylvania, California, and New York, they're the three largest um, associations, and um, we didn't have that role. So after that presentation, you know, under 
Nicole Quinlan's administration, mm-hmm. we were able to get that voted in that we would amend the bylaws mm-hmm. so that we would have a, a diversity and inclusion chair. So I'm really excited about that. Not so excited about all the work because because <laughs> immediately afterwards I was they said, okay, well you want this change to happen, you're going to have to be on the bylaws committee. Uh-oh. So we're going to have to make changes, not just for that role, but just looking mm-hmm. at updating um, the entire uh, bylaws. So very excited yes, about that. Yes. Yeah. What impresses me so much about that story is that you approached the thing rationally, reasonably, with some data, and you got something big done. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think if we did so much more of that in our world and in our work, yeah, uh, we could bring so much healing. I agree, because it wasn't like people were trying to keep us out. They yeah. just needed support. Yeah. You know, and I think when you when you approach situations in a real, you know, rational, recognizing that everybody has a point of view and you're able to provide a truth to them. Um, it makes it easier for decision-making. Um, and I've found that I've, I've considered the Pennsylvania Psychological Association to be a family, very welcoming. Mm-hmm. One of my remarks when, when uh, doing the presentation was that every time there was a president change, they would come to me and say, Tim, you know, uh, glad to see you as part of the association. Just let me know what we can do to to make this organization more inclusive. Oh. Yeah, so that that was about four administrations that went through and finally we got something done. So yes. that's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> what an example to everybody. Cuz I think if we free up or include anyone, we we heal everybody. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, and and if you look at the board now, when I first joined, it was mostly Caucasian males. Mm-hmm. And today we had our board meeting and there were three men. I was one of the three men. And the rest of the board, including the uh, president, um, are women. Yes. And, you know, women from diverse backgrounds, diverse ages, mm-hmm. um, and they're getting a lot done. That's fantastic. So. What a joy. <laughs> I have here six steps to speaking up. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? You know, we had it on our um, table in terms of um, some of the things. The, the Committee on Multiculturalism, every year, they have literature um, on their table um, just to let people know how they can advocate for individual rights. Um, when we say Committee on Multiculturalism, we're talking about race, religion, um, um, sexual orientation, right. you know, all the the differences that need to be brought in so that we can remember that you know, the United States is truly a melting pot yeah. and that we rise and fall, um, but mostly rise when we celebrate differences. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And that handout is a way to address some, let's say, microaggressions that might occur or when we hear someone speaking in a way that is not really healthy or life-giving about any group or any organization, and these are some little tips to do that, isn't that the case? Yeah, yeah, so the, the, the six steps, you know, be ready, identify the behavior, appeal the principles, set limits, find an ally, and be vigilant is the recipe. So when you're being ready, you know, um, there's an opportunity where you hear a microaggression you know, you hear something said that's not right, that somebody's not being treated right, mm-hmm. you know, and if you are mentally prepared to advocate for that person, mm-hmm. that's the be ready state, mm-hmm. you know, so 
they're also being ready if they have a plan. You know, how I'm how am I going to mm -hmm. to advocate? And part of that is the second step, identifying the behavior. You know, uh, whether it was someone was slighted because they didn't get a raise or because of a remark that was made. You know. Um, and being able to put words to that, you know, exactly what it was that occurred. And then, you know, appeal to the principles, you know, um, in terms of fair-mindedness and, and how um, addressing that behavior not only uh, betters the person, but also it might be an organizational thing. Um, so you're bettering the organization when you address those different behaviors. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, setting the limits, you know, knowing to yourself, I am not going to be a part of laughing when, when racial jokes are being made or when people are being slighted, you know. So you have your personal limits. And then, and it doesn't have to be a way, a, a way where people are so fearful that they will be rejected and that their friends will see them as not being fun. But in actuality, it's surprising how my friends who who have been allies, how they're respected by their friends, mm -hmm. and that they ultimately say that, you know, the ones who rejected me, ultimately I learned that they weren't good friends and that they not only slighted minorities, but they also um, were not so friendly to me as well. Oh, you know? I see. You get insight into some of our blind spots. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, whether you're someone who is from the majority and you witness someone being slighted, or you're being slighted as, as, as someone who is a member of a minority group. You know, finding that ally mm -hmm. is very important. And, you know, they're around every corner. You know, you can almost look around and see where you have the compassion, where you have the people who, who want to help, yeah. you know, and to accept that help yeah. is real important. And then just being vigilant, you know, mm -hmm. um, standing up for your rights, standing up for the rights of others. You know, those are the six steps. And if everyone did that, you know, um, the world would be such a better place. Oh, be transformative, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for putting them in your own words. And it's just a simple little handout that can can make a world of difference. Mm -hmm. You said it's a recipe to <clears throat> to help us to make a better world. Yes, or so. And I see a cookbook <laughs> here from the <laughs> the multicultural committee, and yeah. these are. Uh, recipes that are from all over the place, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so um, the Committee on Multiculturalism every year has a gathering and it's um, uh, hosted by uh, Dr. Jean D. Vincenzo and she has a beautiful, lovely home uh, in the Philadelphia area. Uh, so we go to her home and it's up to, you know, 20 people at a time and it's just and, you know, uh, psychology students and um, veteran psychologists um, and people who are just in the field, they all come together. And we made it potluck, so everybody brought, you know, different foods and said, you know, hey, bring it from your cultural background or bring it from your favorite. Like, I'm an African-American, but I might bring, you know, a really good plate of spaghetti from the Italian, you know, yeah. culture, you know, whatever um, it is. But just make it have a cultural spin to it. And so the first time we did it, we had such great recipes, you know. So um, a few of the members, I think it was Alice Chen and Dr. Uh, Takako Suzuki, yeah. said, you know what, we really need to put together a cookbook. Well, that was, I think, about almost eight years ago. And every year we would talk about We started gathering some recipes, but we could never get it to really take off. Mm -hmm. So um, our great... Um, executive director of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association, Anne-Marie Frakes, 
Was um, she the one that got this movie? Yeah, she finally said, you know what? I, I know uh, um, a publishing company that can get this done. And she um, talked to the uh, president of the Pennsylvania Psychological Foundation and said, you know, this would be a way to bring money to the Student Multicultural Award. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, Willamette Simmons agreed. And so after that, um, I went to the listserv and I started soliciting recipes. And it wasn't really moving. So what I did was I went to my church and got some recipes from them and um, put in the book. Um, I went to my family uh-huh. and got recipes and started it off with about 15 recipes. And then went back to the group and said, look, we got 15 recipes. And we added the, the recipes from the, the members of the Committee on Multiculturalism. And then the recipes started coming in. And so we had about 70 recipes. And um, I edited the book, and then I did some research on the background on the Committee on Multiculturalism. I found out that um, past president Rick Small Mm -hmm. um, worked with um, another past president, Beatrice Salter, Mm -hmm. and started the Committee on Multiculturalism. So I put that information in the book. I put information on culture and how it and how it's um, how it influences the foods that we eat Mm -hmm. and vice versa and put all that stuff in there. So I'm listed as the, uh, as the editor-in-chief. Good. And the, other, the actual editors are the people who contributed, and we have a good represent, uh, representation from the various psychologists who contributed. Food is so nourishing. Meal is symbolic of connectedness. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I think it's, it's a, a beautiful symbol of things. Lavanya came up to me yesterday and said, want to buy one of these because the money's going to go to the multicultural award. So, uh-huh. you know, I was happy to do it, especially as soon as I knew what it was going for. Yeah, uh, Lavinia Devdas is the, the new chair of the Committee on Multiculturalism. She's doing an excellent job. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Good yes. stuff. You mentioned uh, your family a couple times, so it sounds mm-hmm. like that's such an important part of your life, and yeah. I'm happy to hear that. And you mentioned your church just now. Would you be comfortable mm-hmm. saying a little bit about your spiritual philosophy, uh, how that might influence uh, how, well, who you've become and the work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I don't. I, I think I think the biggest thing is it, my religion gives me a sense of gratitude. Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms of you know, I started out as a Baptist, and then um, I ended up marrying uh, someone from uh, Catholic. No, and nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to make sure that we were being fair in raising my son, mm-hmm. uh, we joined a Episcopal church because it has the traditions of both um, Baptist and Catholic. Okay, okay, it has a gospel choir, mm-hmm. but the priests and ministers they wear the robes and do a lot of the rituals of yeah. the Catholic Church. So it's a perfect blend. But beyond the rituals, just in terms of the message. You know, I just learned so much about gratitude. You know, you you build off of the principles of the Ten Commandments in terms of how you treat um, mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. And I know personally, when I'm able to put away the ego, put others first, I'm so informed in when I was a therapist mm-hmm. and, and now that I'm an administrator, um, just in terms of decision-making, supporting people, helping people grow, mm. all of that, um, I get 
a lot of influence from, uh, I guess, my spiritual background. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's just really captivating to hear the various factors that have shaped you into who you are and how you then take that and serve others. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Really yeah, and, I, and I, I think from the background, I mean, I was born in Aiken, South Carolina, huh. and uh, we moved to Philadelphia. Huh. And um, my mother, um, so you, you have to be from Philadelphia to get this, but my mother, being a, na- a naive country woman, said, you know what, this, this area of the city is called Nice Town, so it must be just a really nice huh. part. And it actually was a, a pretty rough part, you know. Uh, so I grew up in Philly. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So very humble beginnings, you know. But uh, to kind of avoid the mean streets, I read comic books. I read everything I could get my hands on, and some of it was not to avoid the mean streaks, but to get rid of my southern accent. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was teased terribly about having a, a, a southern accent because I was from Aiken, South Carolina. Uh-huh. So the reading helped me kind of reform how I, I phrase things. So when people, you know, um, hear that I'm from North Philly, they, they call me a liar and they say, no, <laughs> you <laughs> But it, it was actually a, a part of my survival. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. yeah. Creative yeah. way to go. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, another positive response to something where there was some struggle there some people getting on you for your accent and you being transformative yeah 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 and I was always a tall guy so I was always being challenged so I I I was fighting quite a bit and one of my teachers I remember in fourth grade she said you know what you're hurting these people and they're not going to be your friends so I had to figure out another way so <laughs> what a philosophy for life huh? yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. wow yeah. if leadership of church and state could do more of that i think we'd be we'd be real well off yeah is there anything uh, tim that you wanted to make sure that we talk about or that you want to share with our listeners yeah well no you know what you gave me such an opportunity to kind of travel through my life and, and look at um, how things have changed and how um, you know I've benefited from psychology. I know right now, as an administrator for adults with intellectual disability, I'm very concerned that psychologists are not trained to help this population. I did my dissertation on the the health disparity, the mental health disparities of this population in terms of. It's not recognized that they can have depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of diagnostic overshadowing going on where it says, oh, well, this person is depressed. They just have an intellectual disability. Yeah, so, yeah, that's that's one of the main focuses. Right now I sit on the board of the National Association of Dual Diagnosis, Mm -hmm. and that focus is on people with intellectual disabilities and co-occurring mental illness. Mm -hmm. So I do quite a bit of training um, in... um, um, mental health um, institutions and, and hospitals mm-hmm. and letting um, professionals know mm-hmm. that um, this group is very receptive to therapy. We may have to adapt it mm-hmm. a bit. Our skills can be used in this area. And so would you be then training uh, nurses, physicians, counselors? Nurse, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that that profession has very little insight in terms of how to support this population. Yes. Um, so we have a lot of members um, on, on NAD, is what's called National Association of Dual Diagnosis, mm-hmm. of psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, 
um, behavior specialists, um, applied behavior analysts who um, have learned the principles of supporting this group. And now we go out and are trying to spread the word. That's fantastic. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, just a little self-disclosure about my brother. <clears throat> he spent most of his life at Penhurst, oh. the place where you did those volunteer uh, early on and where your mother worked, did you say? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah mm -hmm. most of his life. And then it turned into kind of a horror story, didn't it? But they yes. had to close the place and, yeah. and he moved on and all. So, wow, yeah, I got a kind of a chill when you started talking <laughs> about that because that's many years ago. But, yeah, uh, yet another connection. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. God bless you. Well, the diversity thing, uh, you're, you're sort of an embodiment of it, not just color, but religion and attitude and bringing, uh, uh, bringing inclusion to life instead of uh, fighting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah I, think, I think when we celebrate uh, the, the best of all of us, um, then we benefit from that greatness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had the good fortune a couple times of speaking to a, a conference for people of color just because of the research that I've done in, mm -hmm. in my past, and that was their big theme. If you free up any person or group, no matter who or what they are, you free up humanity. Yes, And, yes. and uh, you're sort of an embodiment of that. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time and your energy and your efforts and, and wish you the very best. Well, I was honored that you asked me to do this. and. Um, it, it almost serves as a therapy session as I see where I was and, and where I need to go. <laughs> That's great. Thanks a million. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you found us. iTunes reviews seem to have the most influence on making it easier for potential listeners to find us. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.